right, welcome back, guys. Jay Martin here, and I'm joined right now for the first time by Jesse Day, the host of Commodity Culture. Jesse, it's great to have you on. It's great to be on, Jay. I've been following your show for quite some time, so it's an honor to be here today. I'm looking forward to it. And um, so, quick, quick background on on Jesse. You know, you uh, are the founder of a channel called Commodity Culture. You'll see in the background, Jesse produces very, very strong research and deep dives into a variety of commodities. I think mainly uranium and silver, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, you put together this deep dive into the uranium sector and, you know, it ended up, you know, going somewhat viral. I think around 200,000 views on YouTube. It ended up on Sprott's radar. They wanted to license it from you. Uh, that's about when you and I connected and I found your content. I think it's very, very good. So for somebody who uh, hasn't stumbled onto commodity culture yet, I might not know who you are, Jesse. Can you give us like the quick 30 second high level overview? Um, what is commodity culture and, and what are you doing? So commodity culture started as a channel making documentaries. And so I was doing documentaries on commodities and natural resources. I did uranium, coal, oil, natural gas, the precious metals as well. And I got onto Sprott's radar with the release of the uranium documentary. And so they started licensing my work to market their ETFs for, uh, firstly for Sput, the, the physical uranium trust, and then also PSLV and their other ETFs as well, the gold one, platinum, palladium. So I've, I've been working with them on those documentaries. And then eventually I transitioned to doing interviews, much like yourself, with some of the uh, greatest minds in the commodity space. I've interviewed people like Lobo Tigre, Justin Hune, um, yeah, Jim Rogers. Uh, and, and so I love to sit down with these people and find out how they tick. And the goal now with the channel is to assist people with their due diligence when looking into the commodity space. And so that's why I get people on who are way smarter than me to break down different sectors and, and help people out. So that, that's what the channel's about. That mission sounds very familiar, Jesse. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, man. All right. Let's uh, let's talk uranium. You know, I can tell you from the last 10 years of hosting investment conferences, whenever I had a feature on uranium, it would pack the house. The investors were very loyal, good market or bad. And there always seemed to be a uranium bull market just around the corner, just out of reach. Um, there's some macro catalyst right now that convinced a lot of people, uh, myself included, that that market's a lot closer and actually realizing in real time. So what are you seeing and what's, where's your sentiment lie right now on the uranium sector, Jesse, and why? Well, I think the one of the main things is the shift in both public and political sentiment. Um, the fact that uranium and nuclear energy used to be so hated. Everybody used to think about Chernobyl, Fukushima, which was obviously they were both very serious incidents. But when we look at the statistics and anybody who knows the space knows this, nuclear power is actually the safest energy source that exists in the world. It's actually safer than wind or solar when we talk the amount of deaths that occur. Um, so I think that perception started to shift, particularly with this whole push towards a carbon neutral future. Um, and I think uranium is going to be a huge part of that and nuclear energy is going to be a big part of it. So that would be the main um, that sentiment shift uh, is making it much more investable, which is very important because as we move forward to really push the sector, I think we're going to need a large amount of institutional investment. And a lot of these institutional investors, these funds these days, they have pretty strict ESG mandates. You know, they don't want to invest in oil and gas anymore. They definitely don't want to invest in coal. Um, but now they're starting to look at the uranium sector because this is now considered a green, clean form of energy. 
So I think that is the major catalyst that is pushing things forward. There's a whole bunch. There's a lot of nuclear reactors being built out. Of course, we have the Japan story where they're set to restart a lot of their reactors. Um, we have China who's planning to build out 150 within the next 15 years. I believe they have 50 under construction right now. Um, there's a ton of different countries getting on board the UAE, some of the smaller uh, European nations like Slovenia. Um, you're seeing it kind of spread and you're also seeing the consequence of not embracing uranium in places like Germany, where yeah. they've decided we don't want nuclear no matter what, which is not about anything to do with safety and 100% to do with political ideology. So I think people are looking at both sides of the coin and saying, hey, you know, nuclear seems to be the way forward if we really want to go carbon neutral. And I think people are starting to research and understand, and we're even seeing environmental groups getting behind nuclear power. So I think all those shifts in public and political sentiment around the world um, are one of the main catalysts that that are driving this new nuclear renaissance we're seeing. You know, it's it's wild, isn't it, how the very few nuclear incidents that have occurred have been so publicized. And case in point, we're still talking about Chernobyl. That was yeah. over 40 years ago, right? But it's the first thing people mention. Imagine if we treated the oil and gas sector like that, where every time there was a spill or a pipe burst. We, you know, we never forget it like an elephant, but with nuclear, there's been so few. However, they've been so publicized that we still talk about them today as if even the technology is still relevant. And as, as we know, it isn't, right? We don't, you know, the game has changed so much. Okay, I wanna pivot to your portfolio a little bit. Actually, you know what, fun fact, it was Warren Irwin who told me that, uh, you know, Greenpeace was a large part of that sentiment driver, making people, uh, scared of nuclear power. Now, Warren's claim, and I have not been able to verify this, is that Greenpeace was largely funded by the coal industry. So it was a strategic allocation of capital to turn the public away from nuclear and therefore, uh, you know, opening the door to more coal development. Uh, Wouldn't surprise then, me at all. Right? You know, absolutely. I understand incentives. And since then, at least two Greenpeace founders have come out and pivoted uh, dramatically, um, promoting nuclear as as a renewable base load power source. Let's talk about your portfolio a little bit. Um, how do you begin, right? You want to allocate some cash to the uranium sector. Jesse, what are the, what are the first steps you're taking? Um, well, in terms of obviously you need to do your due diligence on the sector and understand the story. It's one thing to sit here and listen to people in interviews talk about it, but I think it requires a really deep dive because otherwise you won't have the conviction necessary to invest and stay in the space because it's extremely volatile as the commodities market often is. Um, when it comes to like what sort of asset to, to um, invest in, ETFs are the best place to start in my opinion. This broad physical uranium trust is the lowest risk relative. It's obviously everything's risky, right? Especially these days. But in terms of the uranium space, I would say ETFs are the best place to start. I personally, uh, because I'm Canadian and, and uh, want to access the Toronto Stock Exchange, I have um, HURA Hura as my main holding. Um, you know, even though I do all these deep dives on these different companies, it's almost like the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. And, and so in, in that situation, I want to be covered. So I want a basket of a bunch of different companies, and I want that heavily weighted with Cameco and Kazatomprom, which that mm. ETF does as well as URNM in the US. So I would look at those two ETFs first. And in my opinion, if you're investing in the uranium space, 
you must have exposure to Cameco and Gazatom Prom. It just doesn't make sense not to. And a lot of people like to speculate on explorers and developers. And I personally invest in developers as well. I stay away from explorers, but you need to have the major players because these are the only two companies that are producing at the moment in any sizable quantity. So it just makes sense to have exposure to those two. So I would say, start with the ETFs, start with Cameco and Kazatomprom um, directly if you, if you don't want to invest in an ETF. And from there, you can then speculate on the sector and start looking at developers. And if you're really adventuresome and have a higher risk tolerance, you can then take a look at the explorers. Yeah, I like having the anchor position like that. And I do the same in the precious metal sector. I'm very disciplined with that. Every dollar that goes into, and I like to play in expiration. I like to gamble, but I'm very conscious of every dollar that goes towards expiration, what's going into a safe bet, right? And usually for me, that's honestly just physical, but okay, let's stick yeah. with uranium uh, and let's go down the food chain a little bit into the higher risk arena. Let's start with developers. You are allocate, allocating cash there. So are you looking at jurisdiction? What red flags are you are you trying to find to get to that no? That's often the easy, the smartest thing to do is how quickly can I get to the no, as you said. And so talk to me about your process, Jesse. Yes, absolutely. So first, I want to talk about jurisdiction a little bit. Um, I, I think it's very important to be geographically diversified. I see people who claim to only invest in the Athabasca Basin in Canada, and that blows my mind because yes there is some of the greatest deposits and some of the best companies obviously cameco is there but there's a lot of risk there as well permitting is very slow you have a lot of environmental regulatory requirements i'm not saying that's a bad thing it's just a fact um, and it can take years for some of these things to to get done um, you have to deal with the indigenous populations there again i'm not saying that's a bad thing it it should be done because it's their territory you have to respect them um, but that process can often take a very long time as well. So you're looking at very slow permitting times, a lot of red tape. And so despite being called the Saudi Arabia of uranium, which it most certainly is when we look at the, the quality of, of the deposits there, you have to be mindful of those things. So then if we shift gears to a jurisdiction like Niger in Africa, mm -hmm. um, people get worried about a place like that because you know terrorism exists there. When you're looking like as a traveler, you would not want to visit Niger. Like it's one of the most unsafe countries in the world to visit. There's violent crime, kidnappings. It's a dangerous place. So people compare those two things. They, they look at Canada and they say, well, people don't get killed and kidnapped there. So that, that's a lot better. And, and the, you know, the, the government's a, a different story in Canada right now. Um, but you look at a place like like Niger and, and people get scared away. But I look at the Athabasca Basin and uh, Niger as the same in terms of jurisdictional risk. It's just different risk. Um, so regardless, it's important to be geographically diversified. So then you mitigate your risk in all of the different areas. Um, so I think that's, that's one of the most important things. Um, in terms of what I'm looking for when I look at a company, some sort of economic assessment is the first thing I look for, whether that be a PEA, a feasibility study, a pre-feasibility study, what, whatever is available. I, I, I want to be able to see some economic data on the project before I decide to deploy my capital there. That's not always possible. Um, that's not a make or break for me, but I really do like to see that. I like to see management with skin in the game. I believe that's important. Um, that's actually something that's lacking in a lot of these big companies, big developers um, that people are super bullish on and some of them I'm bullish on as well. 
but a lot of them have extremely low insider ownership, which is a little bit suspect. Um, I look at share structure. I don't want companies that are diluting their, their shareholders by printing shares. That being said, I understand share dilution is sometimes necessary to move a project forward when capital is required. I don't think it's always a terrible thing, but some companies just have share structures that are really less than ideal. So those are some of the main factors I look at. Obviously, management's important. As a small retail investor, I don't put as much weight on management as, as some of the big players in the space, people like Rick Rule place, um, because I can't have conversations with these people. All I can do is read their bio on a website and watch interviews with them. And of course, in interviews, they're going to say only bullish things. It, you know, that they're, they're, you're not going to get the, the big picture that you can get when you're a large size investor who's able to actually form relationships with management mm -hmm. and really understand mm -hmm. what their process is, right? So it's definitely important for me that management is experienced in the, in the uranium industry. I do follow all the interviews of the various CEOs because you can often tell, even though they're definitely talking their own book, of course, you can often tell by their demeanor and the way they discuss things. Um, you know, John Cash from UR Energy is, is a great example. He is just one of, he's, he's a newer CEO. He came on board this year, ton of experience in the uranium industry, but he's a real straight shooter. You know, um, you, you, you know, that, uh, he's, he's not, he's not marketing. You know what I mean? He's just telling it like it is. I feel like, um, Steven Roman from global atomic is the same way. So you can glean some information from these CEO interviews, but I don't think it's enough to form an accurate assessment of the management. So for that reason, I personally don't place a big um, emphasis on the management. Of course, the, the deposit, the, the size of the deposit and um, the quality of the deposit, and of course the OPEX, how much is it gonna cost to take this uranium out of the ground um, is also very important. Um, and the mining methodology used, um, has it been used before in this particular jurisdiction? Um, all of those things, and, and honestly, a lot more are important. The thing with uranium companies, um, you can't use traditional ratios like, you know, the PE ratio, price to book, earnings per share, all, all of these traditional ratios that one would look at when evaluating a company are not really pertinent because most of them aren't profitable. Their, you know, PE ratio is going to be minus 50 or something like that. So you can't, they're, they're kind of useless things to look at. So it's much more important to look at the other factors I mentioned, and perhaps the most important factor is when will they go into production? Mm -hmm. This is the main thing that I, I, I would probably place emphasis on because a lot of companies have great deposits, incredible feasibility studies, you know, robust economics, great management team. It ticks all the boxes, but yet there's no mention anywhere of when they're going into production or it's really far into the future or it's, well, we're not really sure. Let's wait and see. So I like to see a clear timeline to production, even if it's an estimate, even if it's like we estimate around here, then you at least get a ballpark. You probably want to you know, move that forward a few years to get the, the real number for when production will begin. But I think that's also important. As I said, I don't look at, at the exploration space at all. I'm not interested in taking that sort of risk. Um, that can often be very high reward. If one of these explorers hits a discovery, they moonshot, right? It's, so some people take the approach of, well, I'll just invest in a bunch of explorers and then if one of them finds a discovery, my, my portfolio is just going to moonshot, which, hey, if, if you've got a high risk tolerance, then then fair enough. But I don't play in that space at all.
Yeah. And I, I do play in that space. And I think what's super important if you're going to is to make sure whatever you put on the table, you can 100% afford to lose. People make mistakes yes. of just going all in and say, well, if I pick 10 explorers, one of them's got to pop. And maybe, but that may be five years away. I mean, you don't know, right? And the market can stay irrational far longer than you can stay solvent. And so rule yes. number one yes. is stay alive, right? And whatever yeah. you're putting in that high risk game, it's like you're at the poker table. As soon as you have some winnings, put it in the back pocket and lock that pocket, right? And so that's why I really like your, your anchor rule, right? Have exposure to Cameco, Castomprom, uh, the ETFs or, uh, you know, but like start there. That's the base, yeah. right? That's the rock foundation. And then you can build a cool building on top of developers. And if you want to do something eccentric and have an explorer over here, go for it. But you know, if that collapses, the foundation's still tight and you're going to be okay, right? You're still at the table. It's the most important. Thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I always put the rule down that any sector I'm going into, um, I'm 100% commodities, which may or may not be very smart, but but any sector that I that I decide to go into, I make sure that I I explore the ETFs and I find an ETF that that works for me, and then I make that my anchor position first before I start looking at other companies. Yeah, yeah, and that allows you to like I think um, relax a little bit, right? Because we're all subject to FOMO, and when the market starts running, yes. like it'll tap your emotions, and if you think it won't, I would just say you haven't been in the game very long. We're all subject to a rising share price and a falling share price. It'll keep you up at night, you know? And so yeah. if you've already got some skin in the game, right? In the form of an ETF or a conservative position, if things start happening, at least you know, right? You've got a horse in the race, right? You're not on the sidelines. And then you can still look for higher risk if you want to go that way or more uh, geographic diversification if you want to go that way, but you've got your horse in the race. And so you can calm down a little bit. I think make better decisions as a consequence. I love that. Uh, Jesse, there's, there is a ton of action in the Athabasca Basin. Lots of companies, right? Explorers and developers. There's been a little bit of M&A activity, really just, you know, the UEC taking out UEX. Do you anticipate more consolidation in the sector because, you know, when everybody's eyes turn to one industry uh, and capital starts flowing, right? There's, there's reason to see that. But what are your thoughts? Are you watching that or what do you think? I think there absolutely will be. Because as I said, there's a lot of these companies with fantastic deposits and robust economics, but no real clear path to production. So I think those companies are the most likely to get taken out by a by a bigger player, by a BHP, by a Rio Tinto, you know, Orano, something like that. So I definitely think we're going to see more of that. Who knows when or or how much of it? But I definitely see, especially in the Athabasca Basin, there's so many companies um, that are that are kind of in that in that strange space between development and production where there's no real clear timeline. And I, I think those companies are probably the most likely. And, and I think that's what they're thinking too, even if they don't publicly say it, they're hoping to get taken over. Uh, do you want to name drop? You don't have to, but if it's any companies you like a lot, and only because you mentioned Niger and companies that have a timeline to production, um, GoVX being one, their project in Niger should be in production. Uh, what are we looking at here? I think three years, right? They're going to be constructing in about 12 months. This is, you know, their, their speculative forecast. Any companies on your radar that you're very excited about right now, Jesse? Yeah. Uh, if we're talking Niger, you know, I, I also have my eye on GoVX, although I'm not a shareholder. Uh, Global Atomic is probably my biggest conviction in the entire space right now. Mm -hmm. um, Stephen Roman is the biggest shareholder in the company. And that talk about having skin in the game, 
he is he's the biggest over institutional investors. He's he's actually the largest shareholder out of anybody in the company. Now he got really cheap shares in the past that you, you can't look at that on face value that like, oh, he's been buying, you know, it's it's uh it's a little bit more nuanced than that. But he bought he he's been buying not too long ago and he has massive conviction. He has so much money on the table when it comes to the company. I love the project. I love how they have uh, a zinc uh, smelter company in uh, in Turkey, which is profitable. And and when you look at, at it's been tough to do due diligence on on that. I believe uh, Bethesda Silvermet, I believe is what they're called in Turkey. Um, it's tough to do a lot of due diligence on them because they trade on on a stock on some. I don't even know what stock market. Maybe the London Stock Exchange, I believe they trade on. Um, but when when you look at the information available, it's a profitable company. It's got a great price to book ratio. Um, so it looks like they have that to kind of fortify them um, against any sort of economic instability in the markets, in the economy. So I really like that they have kind of that. Um, and they are ramping up towards production. Uh, they have all their permits in place. They recently reached an, a, a deal with the Niger government. Um, so they're locked and loaded and ready to go. Um, another thing I like is that we're seeing a lot of supply chain breakdowns these days, right? Which leads to inflated prices, which leads to the potential for mines being way more expensive than originally anticipated to build. Yeah. So what Global Atomic has said they're doing is they're sourcing a lot of these things in Niger and the surrounding areas. So they don't have to transport these different, uh, the machinery and the equipment needed to construct the mine. They don't have to transport it overseas, which costs an incredible amount of money these days. The cost of shipping these things like overseas these days is absolutely insane. So they're able to save on cost there. And that's one company that I, I believe will will produce in, in the near term. So I'm very bullish on them. Um, in the Athabasca Basin, I'm quite bullish on NextGen. Um, Unfortunately, NextGen is also one of those companies who doesn't have a clear timeline to production, um, which I would like to see from them, but they have basically the greatest uranium deposit in the known world at the moment. So it's almost like you want to have exposure to them for that deposit. I think they are a prime target to be taken out and acquired as well for, for that reason. So uh, I love NextGen as well. I like energy fuels in the United States. I think America is an important jurisdiction to have exposure to. Um, I know Rick Rule doesn't really like it because because he says the mines are too small for him. But um, I think the the emerging story about sourcing uranium domestically in America um, and and moving away from from foreign sources of production could become a real one. I don't know. There's been a lot of talk. the The truth about a lot of these Russian sanctions is a lot of them aren't real. I'll, I'll be honest here. A lot of people are talking about sanctioning Russia over this and that, and we're not going to, you know, buy oil from them. Um, now, when it comes to the uranium market, it's more about conversion and enrichment uh, in, in Russia. Russia supplies only about five to 6% of the world's uranium. That's not an insignificant number either, but it's the conversion and enrichment. I believe both are north of 30%. Um, so there is an American uranium story developing. And there, there's a lot of companies, um, you know, Uranium Energy Corp, uh, Energy Fuels, UR Energy. But I think Energy Fuels is the best positioned at the moment to take advantage simply because they've produced so much uranium in the past. You know, when it comes to UR Energy, for example, they've produced a little bit. Um, UEC has produced a, a negligible amount, I believe. But um, 
when it comes to energy fuels, I believe they, they've been the second largest producer outside of Cameco, who also has operations in America um, in the past. So they're, they're producing, I don't believe they're producing at the moment, or if they are, it's a very small amount, mm -hmm. but they've already proven that they can produce uh, large amounts. And they, they have, you know, the White Mesa mill, which I believe is the only licensed uranium mill currently. Um, I might be wrong on that. U UEC might also have one, but uh, they've got everything set up and then they have a rare earths component, which I also think is very advantageous because at the moment, the vast, vast majority of rare earth comes from China. And this mm -hmm. is a very essential mineral and the US government recognizes it as such. It's needed for a lot of defense manufacturing and stuff like that. Um, so I believe that energy fuels could also be be a winner moving forward because of that past production of, of large amounts of uranium um, combined with the rare earth story. And, and they've also already proven that they can produce um, rare earth. So I, I, the, th those are the companies I'm mainly uh, invested in and, and watching at the moment. I love it. I'm glad I asked. All right, look, Jesse, thanks for coming on. Check out Commodity Culture. It's right behind him. Can't miss it, but it's on YouTube, right? Episodes uh, once or twice a week. Is that right? Uh, every Wednesday, I do an interview, and on Fridays, I do a company analysis on a different uranium company. It's not every week because these videos take a lot of time to put together. So it's about every second week on Friday, I do a company analysis video as well. You're doing good work, man. I appreciate it. Look, thanks so much for coming on the show, Jesse. I appreciate you. Thank you so much. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor. Follow or subscribe to this podcast. Drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.